Thanks for checking out the Lakeshore Podcast. If this is your first time listening with us, we want you to know God loves you. We want for your hope in Jesus to be renewed and for your faith to come to life. Wherever you are joining us from, we hope this message encourages you. And uh, the subline is we're understanding a covenant that we have with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's kind of unfolding and will become more and more clear as the study goes on. Um, but, but here's kind of the premise of it. Even though that what makes you a Christian is accepting Jesus as your Lord and being redeemed and being washed and kind of purchasing your eternity in heaven with God, that's wonderful. I'm not marginalizing that. But even though that's true, we've got a lot of Christians. I keep being tempted to say most, but, but that may be too big of a statement. But I'm, I'm trying to think about, you know, Christianity in America. I'll, I'll, I'll just pull it back to many, many, many Christians who have no real confidence in this God that they're putting their eternity in the hands of. They're holding a Bible that they say, no, this is the Bible, this is God's word, but they have no real trust, no real tangible, measurable faith that God really was telling the truth, that God really will fulfill his promises. And and especially when it comes to stepping into an everyday life situation, you know, not something that necessarily is eternally important, but something that is even temporarily challenging something that's throwing you off, something that's making life extremely difficult for you. Most, many Christians have no real confidence that God really is listening and he'll really do that and he'll bring solutions. So I'm not saying that they're not coming to church regularly. I'm not saying that they're not, you know, bringing their tithe and their offering and giving generously to the Lord. I'm not saying that they're not singing and participating in the, you know, the Christian um, services with, with respect and with reverence for the Lord. I'm not even saying that, you know, that, that serving others is kind of a, a, a marginalized thing. It's not. It's all really important. But these same people, though, oftentimes are, are doing all of those wonderful things, but they are living in a perpetual cluelessness, kind of a willful ignorance. Pardon me for making you know, such pointed accusations, but uh, they don't understand the integrity of the word of God. So we, we went to work and we started in Hebrews chapter six and we read a whole passage. We've been carrying it with us. I'm just gonna read one verse because it kind of is the center of the bullseye. It says, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise, that's you and I as believers, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. And that's shocking to a lot of Christians that God would go to such length. In other words, we would say it this way, God signed a contract. Because it's one thing when you promise somebody, you can sell somebody, you can promise them, you can give them your heart's intent, But when you put your name on a contract and it becomes a legal document, that's at a whole different level and everybody knows that. And and that's kind of what Hebrews 6 set up and then it's told us God so wanted us to believe him that even though he's a God that can't lie and won't lie and doesn't lie, he went an extra step and said, but I want you to know that I'm absolutely faithful. I will not change my mind. So he signed a contract with us. Well, we find out that this oath or this contract throughout the Old and New Testament is called a blood covenant. And historically, not just in the church, it's the most binding agreement known to man. 
And once you understand this, and, and you kind of understand how it works as we're in this series, then you'll begin to recognize it's pretty normal, by the way, to have doubts about your faith. That's just part of your humanity catching up and wrestling through some of the tangible, measurable experiences that you, you can see and you're going through versus what your, your spirit, the faith on the inside is rooting up and telling you to push past the things that you can see and trust that God works in the unseen. But that's pretty normal that God's not frustrated with us for wrestling with doubts. That's pretty normal for us to have days where it seems like our faith just diminishes and we're trying to pick it back up again. That's that's pretty normal. That's our humanity. But let me, let me tell you, on the other hand, to stay in those doubts, to live in those doubts week after week, months after month, year after year, and to allow those doubts to take you off course, when God went to such great lengths to do everything he can to convince you, no, I'm telling the truth. I meant what I said, and I said what I meant. Listen to me, at minimum, that's just sad. It really is. It's grievously sad. But on another level, it's kind of willfully shameful. It's like that's embarrassing for us to be in a covenant with God and God's bending over backwards to prove to us that he's telling the truth. And by the way, on, on, uh, in some conversations in the right settings, we'll try to convince other people, no, that's the Bible. That, that's the truth. And then when it comes down, push comes down to shove in our everyday life, we struggle to believe it. Again, no condemnation for that. It's just acknowledging, yeah, I've, I've, I've got to make some adjustments here. And so we've been studying this because if this oath, if this contract, if this blood covenant was so essential, so important to God, that he went the extra step and he wrote about it over and over and over in the Bible, then it's really important that we understand the basic frameworks of this covenant because I'm telling you, your entire Bible is two covenants. It's two contracts. It's the Old Testament, or that's the Old English word for covenant or contract, and then the new and improved covenant or testament or contract. And the whole thing's a legal document. Yes, it's a love letter from God. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. But it's also a legal document that we can depend on that God intentionally signed. And we have to understand this, how it's framed in, so the Bible can jump. So we've been studying. We found out there's three major components in a blood covenant. Number one, what is it? Why is it? Why, why, why put together a contract like this? What is it made up of? We talked about the four preliminary decisions or the parameters kind of, you know, these are the boundaries of, of the covenant and these are the, the benefits that are promised in the covenant. And then we're, we're in number three right now. There's nine different commitments, nine different parts that you walk through kind of the ceremony, if you will, of, of, a, of a contract of a covenant. And in these nine commitments, we, we begin to see how the New Testament unfolds and we see, wow, we're actually in this. This is actually what Jesus did for us. And so, so far we've covered the first five. We talked about the, the formation and the initiation of a blood trail. We talked about the exchange of coats. We talked about the exchange of weapons. We talked about walking and making those eternal commitments in blood so they can never be broken. And then finally, we talked about the cutting and the scarring of flesh. By the way, if you miss those, please, please, please go get the podcast. They're free. We're not getting anything out of this other than, uh, you know, the, the reward that, that we're growing and we're learning. Also, it's not too late to pick up a study guide and jump in. 
the, the study guides, we're finishing the ones you have in your hand up today, but next Sunday uh, you'll, you'll be able to download or you'll have a brand new uh, for the next uh, selection of lessons that will keep, keep us going. Uh, if, if you haven't joined a connect group, I, I mean, I'd be willing to stay after and just do everything I could to talk you into that. I, I get that we're busy and time is limited, but I'm telling you, this is so important, especially in the days we're living, that we are gathering with other believers and we are chewing on uh, digesting the Word of God together. It's vitally important. And last but not least, uh, there's a supplement book. We're not teaching according to the book, but there's a supplement book called God Swears to Keep His Promises. Full disclosure, I've said this every time. My brother Jerry uh, is a pastor. He wrote that, uh, but I'm not getting any commission off this or anything. So, um, But I, I, I wanted you to, to have this because of all the, the stuff that I've read on Blood Covenant, which has been quite a bit over the years, uh, this has to be one of the best. Uh, it, it's very historically accurate. It has rich Christian insight, but it's easy to read. It's easy to digest. It doesn't get overly technical uh, or academic. And so my strong recommendation is that you pick that up. All right. So today we're going to finish the final four parts of these nine commitments. And again, every time we're going through one of these, we're bringing up how it directly connects to something that if you've been saved for a while, you're already familiar with. This is part of our Christianity. You've already come across this. You've already learned some things about it. You probably just didn't know how serious it was and how weighty it was and how, how much of a guarantee that it provides because it's part of the covenant or the contract that God sealed with us. So number six, again, we've done one through five. Number six today, we're going to talk about blessing and cursing blessing and cursing. If you're in the ceremony, once vows were exchanged, and we've talked about that extensively, and once, you know, they kind of cut the wrists or cut the flesh and they mingled the blood, so literally their blood was mixed and your blood's now in me and my blood's now in you, and this is what joins us in this contract forever. Once they've done that and they've initiated some scarring there, then the next thing that would happen is both the benefits for honoring the covenant as well as the consequences for breaking the covenant would be read out loud and declared for each side. In other words, in summary, they were saying something like this to one another, all that I am and all that I own is now at your disposal. I'm your ally forever. I promise that I will support you. I will defend you. I will, uh, I will bless you at every turn for as long as I live. However, if you break this covenant, I will become your most fierce enemy. I will do everything I can and use all I have to bring you and your generations to ruin. That's how serious this covenant was. It kind of cut two different directions. And boy, people that were entering in, they understood this fully. But in a sense, this is, this is kind of one of the focuses of the entire study is for us to understand the integrity of the scripture. And to be confident, there's extreme value, not just believing in God, but believing God, believing he's telling us the truth. And when he said something, he means exactly what he said, and he will follow through all the way through. Let me take you first back to Deuteronomy chapter 28. You don't have to turn there, uh, but let me read you the first couple of opening verses. This is in the Old Testament. And the first couple of verses, uh, Moses is writing this for the children of Israel, and it says, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, 
The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings will come on you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And it continues for 12 more verses, detailing areas, categories, and specific blessings to those that will give their life to the Lord and will do their best to obey. However, when you get down to verse number 15, same chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 28, it, it says, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord or be careful to do his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all of these curses, we're going to find out in later studies, the, these were divinely inspired consequences. He says, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. And the rest of Deuteronomy chapter 28, listen, 54 verses outlines in detail all of the curses or all of the consequences related to breaking the covenant of God. Now again, specifically, this was a covenant of Israel, but it gives us a picture or a foreshadow because I know some of you are thinking, I get it, Pastor Gil, but that's the Old Testament. We're not under those curses anymore. Praise the Lord for that, except for the fact that it's a principle that still holds in the new covenant. Except, listen to Romans chapter 11, verse 22. It says, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Now, there's a lot of talk about the kindness of God, right? The love of God. We're in an age of grace. It's just about the grace of the Lord. God knows your heart. God understands, and by the way, he does. But this says you need to pay attention to both the kindness and the severity of God. Severity to those who have fallen, or other translations say, those who have drifted away from following him. But God's kindness to you, and he's talking about to the church, to us that have been redeemed. We have a contract, a New Testament covenant with God. He said, but kindness to you, listen, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Now, in the New Testament, this sounds like, ah, that's kind of pretty legalistic. That, that seems like you were talking about perfection, you know, perfect behavior. That was kind of Old Testament. Every little jot and tittle had, you know, had to be in place. No, no, the Old Testament was about earning atonement. It was about demonstrating your behavior, and that's what reflected your heart. In the New Testament, we're not earning anything. Jesus already earned it for us. But we're talking about putting our faith and our trust in God, putting our faith and our trust in Jesus, not just as our Savior, but as our Lord, and now doing the best we can to obey Him. God, yes, a lot of flex for maturity, a lot of flex for growing and mistakes, as long as they're childish, as long as they're immature mistakes. But the moment they step over and they're intentional rebellion, you know the difference. And you're making the decision to do it because you want to do it. You're in a different conversation with the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about that. At first it's instruction, it's coaching, but then you're going into correction. And if necessary, the Lord, the heavenly father loves you so much, it will take you into discipline. And this is what he's talking about. He's talking about the goodness, the wonderful, warm, gracious, generous, merciful side of God. But there's another side of God, and it's very, very serious. Now, I, I got to learn this growing up, and I, I really felt privileged once I got older that I understood this concept pretty easy, because my dad was the funnest, most affectionate man's man that you would ever want to meet. But dad had a serious side. And when he established rules in the house, those rules were meant to be respected. He had a lot of flex for the learning curve. 
But the moment he was convinced you knew and you chose not to do it, I'm telling you, judgment, punishment was swift and severe. Now, before I go on, I don't want to marginalize anybody who's grown up in kind of an abusive home or anything and and experience, you know, a, a wrong version of discipline. But that wasn't my story. I didn't. My my brothers and I were completely secure. We were completely at peace. We loved, you know, wrestling with dad and he'd wrap his big arms around us and he'd throw us around on them. We loved that stuff and we felt completely confident in it. At the same time, there's this saying that it may still be around and uh, mom would say, you wait till your dad gets home. That was not an idle threat in our house. That was a sobering appointment that jerked us right back into the fear of the Lord because of the fear of dad, because we knew dad was not going to mess around. If we crossed a line we shouldn't have, there was a consequence for that. And so I grew up understanding the goodness and the severity. Goodness if you stay in obedience, not perfection, but if your heart's right and you're trying, but severity if you make the decision either overtly or passively either because you just chose not to do something or you did something you were not supposed to do, either of those qualified and you would meet the severity of, of, of dad. And I grew up understanding that. Uh, here's another, another thing I learned from dad. Uh, he always had a side job going, right? He loved construction and he had a, his main job was a, as a foreman at McDonnell Douglas Aircraft. But on the side, we always had something going with construction. And I think I say this almost every time. This is back in the day where a handshake and a smile and a good reputation is all you needed. And so dad was never without work. And he took me with him most of the time. And I can remember as early as just getting started in middle school, having power tools put in my hand but not irresponsibly. Dad was a big believer in power tools because they gave us a big jump in what we could do and how quickly we could do it. But dad was also a big believer in respecting the, the, you know, the seriousness of a power tool. And if he said it once, I can't tell you how many times he said it. I can hear him saying it now. That power tool doesn't know the difference between your fingers and the material you're working on. So the moment you pick it up, before you even plug it in, before you even turn it on, you better respect that tool. It will work for you or it will work against you. And we get the same speech every single time. And yet I can remember, you know, turning it on and having like kind of that, you know, that exhilaration. I'm excited, but I'm also like cautious, like, ah, be careful. Don't, you know, don't do the wrong thing. And I just learned to grow up with that. And this is, this is exactly uh, how I learned uh, the goodness and the severity. Now, the first one is attached to the person. It's the goodness and the severity of God. The second one was attached to the word of God. Because we need to understand that the Bible is serious about this. The integrity of God's word cuts two directions. You can read a promise in God's word. You can read a blessing in God's word. And you can just smile from the inside out because God's telling the truth. And as amazing it is is to believe, this is exactly what God intends. But on the other hand, you need to understand that the integrity of God's word cuts the other way. He's telling the truth when you don't do what he's asking you to do, there's going to be consequences for that because he loves you. Hebrews chapter 12 again. This is what good dads do. And it's important that you see both sides because if you miss one side, you blind yourself to the other side. So if all you want to see is the blessings, but you refuse to look at the consequences, you'll never really understand the integrity of the blessing because you don't understand what happens if you don't obey. 
You have to be able to see both sides, the integrity of it, and the New Testament doesn't shy away from that. But the moment you begin to recognize God's telling the truth, and there's a severe or a serious side to God, not an out-of-control, not an abusive God, not a God who's just getting vengeance on us, none of that stuff. He's just a dad who is very, very sober and very serious about wanting us to recognize obedience so that he can continue to bless. And this is all of his heart, just like any healthy dad. But if you understand the consequences, then you'll be able to recognize the full meaning of the blessings. For example, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. I like to insert the word already because that's implied who has already blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, it doesn't say who's already blessed us with every spiritual blessings when you get to heaven. That's true. In an upgraded way that we can't even understand. But he says it's already happened in heavenly. In other words, in the court systems of heaven, this is not being decided subjectively over and over. This is a done deal. This is a contract that's already been signed. It's not renegotiated, you know, depending on whether you're having a good day or a bad day. God's promises are what they said, and they're available. And by the way, most of you seem to believe that because you like praying prayers like the Lord's Prayer. And you say, thy kingdom come on earth just like it is in heaven. And we've said that over and over religiously, not thinking about the fact that just lines up with this covenant that we have with God, that if we recognize God is who he says he is, then when he says, I'm not deciding that, should we bless him? Should I heal him? Should I resource him? Should I give him wisdom? Should I give him understanding? Should I do that? He's not deciding that arbitrarily, subjectively. These have already been given. They've already been decided. And that's why Paul writes again in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, all the promises of God find their yes in him. Why? Because they were already given. So if you read a promise, you're like, Lord, is that for me? Uh, yeah, I already said that. I already contracted it. I already signed it. This is not something you have to ask me. Is this what you want to do? Yes, yes. Absolutely yes. Hands down yes. Already been decided. And then it goes on and says, that is why it's through him, that's Jesus, that we can utter our amen or our so be it. Okay, I agree with that. Then let, let that be what, what comes my direction. Our amen to God. And that happens for his glory because they're already given. So the Bible's really full of these blessings and cursings, and you'll see them all the way in there. We're going to talk in a couple of weeks uh, what Paul said in Galatians. We've been redeemed from the curse. That should never be something that we have to experience. But we need to understand what that means. But you need, you need to know foundationally, this was already decided. It's already in the contract. You are part of the group that's been blessed if you'll understand what that means and you'll follow the Lord and begin to grow up in him. So number six is blessing cursing. Here's number seven, the exchanging of names. And whenever they sign this contract, one or both parties would take a part of the other person's or the other party's name and it would do, they, they would declare something like, I now bear your name and you bear mine forever we are one. And we see this happens, you know, all the time, like in company mergers. I, I know some years ago, uh, the Time Company and the Warner Company merged, and now that no, they, they individually they're not around anymore. They're Time Warner, and and this this is exactly what they did. Uh, you don't know um, Debbie Tillery. 
but that's the girl that I met and dated and got engaged to. You know her as Debbie Dearman. She's my wife, which by the way, I thought was a phenomenal idea. I love the fact that she dropped her last name and took mine on. That was great until I had two daughters get married. And they dropped my name like a bad habit. I mean, just like that. And picked up their husband's name. And they did it enthusiastically. I would catch them before their men writing their name, you know, with a new last name. I'm like, what are you doing? It's not even time yet. You know, at least give it another month or so, you know. But they were super excited about it. But this is a really big deal in the exchanging of names. Because what they're saying is the person that existed before this contract doesn't exist anymore. I've stepped into a whole new identity, and it oftentimes just didn't change their moniker, but it changed their status forever and ever. I'll give you a couple of examples. In Genesis chapter 17, God visits Abraham for the fifth time. Now, that doesn't seem significant. It doesn't even really point it out, but it is a significant part because on this particular time, God took Abram, his name, and he inserted an H in there and made him Abraham. He took Abram's wife, Sarai, and he inserted an H into her name and made her name Sarah. Hebrew scholars look at this and their eyes just kind of get really wide because, first of all, the number five in the, in the Hebrew uh, numerical system is very significant. It's the number of grace. So because God did that on the fifth visit, it was very clear in God's intentionality why he did this. But not only that, he chose to insert the letter H, which in the Hebrew alphabet is K, and it's the fifth letter. And that particular fifth letter is also the representation of the, uh, of the word Yahweh, uh, which is a sacred word in, uh, in, in Jewish orthodoxy. And it means the God who created everything and who continues to maintain everything. When you put all that together, Hebrew scholars are really big about saying when God put his own name uh, into Abraham and to Abram and Sarai's name and made him Abraham and Sarai, he was unmistakably declaring in a covenant form that he intended to show his grace to them, in them, and through them for as long as they lived. This was a partnership. They were no longer the same again. From that point on, they were totally different. Now, that's Old Testament. I get it, right? Let's come to the New Testament. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11, the Bible talks about how God changed Jesus' name. And let's just stop and remember, Philippians chapter 4 says, when Jesus came and was born of a virgin, he literally emptied himself of all of that pre-incarnate, everything that he was before, all of, of, of his prestige and his power and his influence as the son of God, which he's always been, he emptied all of that, the Bible says, and he came and he was born as a human. That's Philippians chapter four. It's a really big deal when you study that. It's like, like almost we can't get our head wrapped around it because as humans, it doesn't matter if we divest ourselves of everything. It doesn't come close to the level that Jesus emptied himself and came down and did that. So here he is, Jesus, and he, he's growing up for 30 years as just another Jewish boy. God's got his hand on him. He's studying the law. He's drawn to, to the things that are going on, you know, that are spoken about in the Torah and to understand the heart of God. And we see him growing, the Bible says, in favor with both God and man. But once he then starts his ministry and then he gives his life as a sacrifice and he's raised again, God does something very, very important for us to see. Philippians chapter 2 verse 9 says, Therefore, 
Because Jesus lived this sinless life. He gave his life away on the cross to purchase and seal and sign the covenant. And then he rose again into a new life. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. There's no place no place that you can possibly locate, locate in all of the universes that we, you know, some we know and some we don't know about, that the name of Jesus isn't at the tip top. And when everybody hears and understands the name of Jesus, it's immediate submission and it's willful submission. This is what the Bible says. And notice verse 11, it says, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's the name change. He's not just Jesus, the little Jewish kid anymore. He's Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the chosen one who paid the price for mankind's redemption. And not only is he the, is he the Savior, the Messiah, he's the Lord. He, he's in charge. He has the final say, and this is all to the glory of God the Father. Listen, it's so important that you absorb that and you understand the significance of that. That wasn't just like, yeah, he just went back to his former identity. No. This is a whole new ball game here, and it included you and I, and you have to understand the significance of Jesus, the Christ, who's also the Lord, because if you don't understand that, then you won't understand what it means when the Bible, the New Testament starts talking about your name change. How you're not just another person on the earth who happens to go to church and believe in Jesus. But if you've accepted him, the Bible says that you are now in Christ Jesus. It says you're a brand new creation. In fact, some translations even talk about a brand new species that hasn't existed since Adam, the very first man. That was not only God born, but God empowered. Romans chapter 5 verse 17 talks about that, how the first Adam came and he had the authority and he was reigning over the earth, but then he lost it. So the second Adam, Jesus had to come and pay the price. And now because of him, you and I can reign in life through that one Jesus, just like the original Adam did. These are covenant terms. And you'll completely miss that if you don't understand the name change that Jesus received also means the name change we receive. He's not finished in Romans chapter 8 and John in 1 John chapter 3. He talks about the fact that you and I are bona fide children of God. We've been born into God's spiritual lineage. And not only that, because we're bona fide part of the family, we're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. All those things that Jesus inherited, all those things that Philippians chapter 2 talks about, we get in on that. We're part of that. This is our family inheritance now. Ephesians chapter 5 says that we've been betrothed. It calls us the bride of Christ. We've been betrothed. We are now one with him. Jesus as the groom possesses us. He's protective over us. He doesn't like anybody flirting with us. He's like anybody disrespecting us. He doesn't like anybody else taking things that belong to us. He's a protective groom. And this is exactly what Ephesians 5 says. And here, here's the one that I love. I don't even know how to wrap my head around this, to be honest with you. But Romans, uh, Revelations chapter 2, verse 17 says, when you and I get to heaven, there's a new name waiting for you. I don't even know what that means. But I'm, I'm not going to be called Pastor Gill. Well, that, yeah, that was my name on earth. But I've got a new name waiting for me. 
And it describes something, some attribute about how God created me and about the best version that God can see in me. And that's how I'm going to be known for all of eternity because God keeps calling the best out. This is all really big stuff and a big deal. And this is real. When you begin to understand the covenant and you begin to understand who Jesus is, then you start understanding who you are and you're not so vulnerable now to, the, to being a victim all the time. You just say, wait, wait, hold on for a second. That used to be me. But you probably forgot that I am one with Jesus now. I'm in God's family now. See, this is what was supposed to happen as we're studying and understanding the New Testament. So number six is blessing, cursing. Number seven is exchanging of names. Here's number eight. Uh, it's the covenant meal. So when, when they're in a contract or a covenant, once all the commitments were made, a meal would be prepared and eaten to commemorate that agreement. And in every culture, there were two primary elements in that meal that were the same. They never changed. One was bread and one was wine. The bread represented the physical or the outside body. It means I'm entering into this covenant with everything that I am out here. Everything that I do. But the wine represented the inside, the actual flow of my life's blood. Which means I'm not just entering into a covenant with my hands with the things that I do, I'm entering into a covenant with my heart. The very beating of my heart now beats the covenant. It, it's just constant over and over and over again. And as they ate and they drank together, they would declare things to each other like, I'm eating this meal recognizing that we are now one. You're in me and I'm in you. In fact, in some cultures, they would take a little bit of that blood when they cut the flesh and they would sprinkle it into the two cups so that you're literally drinking and digesting some of the other person's blood because it's in you. But not every culture. And so th this was a really big deal. So when, when you think about a covenant meal, in fact, it relates to communion, which is where we're going to end up in just a few minutes. It relates to communion. I don't want you to think about just eating you know, a, a little piece of bread and drinking some juice. Think more like a wedding reception. Or if you've been married for a little bit, think like an anniversary dinner. Listen to me. I learned the hard way. Just because you come home and you say, we're going to go out to dinner and you sit down and you eat some food, that doesn't celebrate an anniversary. In fact, it's possible that you start out in a worst case scenario when you tried to do something right because you just weren't paying attention to, to the sacredness and to what was supposed to be celebrated here. I mean, you're sitting there eating food and you're kind of watching the TV because there's a great game on over here and you're talking about things that are going on at work and things at the schedule and the person that is sitting here wanting to celebrate with you, they're just getting more and more frustrated, more and more hurt and eventually more and more angry and by the way, they have every right to because this is not just another dinner. This is an important commemoration. So we're going to come back to that. But for now, I just want you to understand communion's not a religious, kind of a religious ritual that we do. You don't just kind of, you know, try to be as sober and as pious as you can for about the three minutes, you know, that we're drinking some juice and we're eating some bread and whoo, glad that's over. And then you go back to yourself. If you're doing that, you, it's possible. We're going to see that Paul says it's possible that you walk out in a worse condition that you walked in. It'd be better you don't even do it then to do it like that. So we're going to talk about all that. So again, number six is blessing and cursing. Number seven, exchanging names. Number eight is covenant meal. We're going to come back. Number nine, here's the last thing we'll talk about, and then we'll come back to the, to the covenant meal, is establishing a memorial. 
Now, this was the last thing that was done. So everything was committed. The whole ceremony had taken place. All the commitments and, 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 you know, and all the things were sealed and signed. The last thing they would do was to seal it with a memorial, something that would never let them forget this actually happened. And this is still a big deal. So, for example, you know, today uh, in, in a corporate merge, this could be like a new logo or a new branding. You know, the old one disappears and you see a brand new symbol up there and everybody gets to see from now on, we're not the same. This is, this is something that reminds us we're totally different. Uh, maybe in a wedding, it could be wedding, wedding photos or a video. So someone can say, I don't even know if that happened. Look, <laughs> did you see on Facebook? Did you download the video, man? Because it's everywhere. It's something that memorializes this. In the Old Testament, Oftentimes they would just take one big huge rock and they might etch, you know, the, the, the dual hyphenated name on there now and maybe the date or they would take a big pile of rocks. You see this a lot in the Old Testament, how they would pile rocks together and they would kind of make, make a memorial before the Lord because something sacred happened there. Other times you, you see in the Bible where they would exchange sheep or exchange cattle, maybe two different colorations or, or two different, you know, types of, of sheep. And these sheep would, 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 you know, would merge. And as they did, you'd get a whole different kind of a third. And as that flock began to grow, they would remind, be reminded, yep, we signed a covenant and the covenant continues to live. In fact, it's growing. You see elsewhere in the Bible where they'd plant a little sapling or sometimes a whole orchard of trees. And as those trees got bigger and stronger and spread their branches out and became, you know, a whole forest, then they would be reminded, listen, this wasn't just a one and done thing. This is an established agreement that continues to live. And because of that, it's growing. Well, you, you can go back to the Old Testament and you can look at Christ and his bride or how he relates to the church all the way back through the Messianic promises. It, it was already talked about in the prophecies back then. And you see symbols. I'm not going to go through the scriptures. They're in your workbook. You can look every one of them up if you want. But let me just tell you what you see all the way through the scriptures. You see Christ being pictured as the stone that the builders rejected. The foundation stone that started building the house. You see Jesus as the Lamb of God. You see Jesus as a little branch that grew out of the roots of David's house, which the enemy was trying to extinguish. And you see that Jesus was that little root. And then you see in the same book of Isaiah, how we become trees of righteousness that grew out of that one little branch that was shooting back up after the tree was chopped down. We become a whole forest of trees now that have been planted by the Lord. Psalm 23 says the Lord's our shepherd. And it goes on in Psalm 100 to say, we are the sheep of his pasture. There's a covenanted sacred relationship there. First Corinthians chapter three says that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit individually. Everywhere you go, God goes with you. I hope God isn't watching. He's right there. He's right with you. He's, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. But not only that, it says when we get together, we become living stones that make this huge, larger temple where the presence of God can come in a greater manner and be experienced by, by multiple people and others can come and find shelter and get in on that. But the primary symbols of the New Testament, I, get, I bet you can guess them, at least the first one. The primary symbol of the New Testament is the cross. And it's not just to remind us that Jesus died. It's to remind us why he died. There was a contract signed. There was a purchase made to catch up with all the old debts. 
and there, there was bloodshed so that he could sign this as a forever contract. And then the second symbol we have uh, in the New Testament was an empty grave because that meant that the covenant was activated. When Jesus died, it was purchased and it was signed. When Jesus came back to life, it activated. He's the first one to step into this. And Hebrews actually says, we'll, we'll cover this in the study, actually says that here's the one who died so the inheritance could, could, could be given to us, but then he came back to life and he's the one mediating or watching over the inheritance to make sure we get everything he purchased. This is going on right now. This is real stuff that many, many Christians aren't understanding or buying into. So if we look back through all of the nine symbols and we see you know, at least three of the living reminders of blood covenant. So there was the scar and there were the names that were exchanged. And we talked today about the memorials. All of these are not just designed to say something happened. They're designed to say something happened that is still alive and still happening today. When I look at my wedding ring, I just don't think about September the 6th you know, in 1986. I think about the fact that I need to be home by five because I told Debbie I would be home. And don't forget that, you know, loaf of bread and that milk or whatever you got to bring because there's an active contract, an active covenant. We are partnering in life together. And this is what it's supposed to be for us. We're supposed to recognize that. It's, it's as if when I see the wedding ring, and I, I'm not saying that I think about the individual vows all the time. But when I see, a wet, when I see my wedding ring, what I'm supposed to think about is the fact that it's as if I'm standing at the altar all over again. And I'm saying, I haven't changed my mind. I'm committed to you and to you only for the rest of my life. Through good times and bad times, we're going to get through it together. Doesn't matter whether we're feeling super healthy or we're a little bit under the weather. We're going to get through it together because we are committed to one another. That's what it's supposed to be. And so even in today's symbols, when we wear a cross around our neck, it's not just jewelry. I mean, it can be, I'm not saying, you know, that you can't wear it as a decoration, but at some point that cross should not remind you just that Jesus died. It should remind you that because he died, something radically changed in your life forever. You're never the same. You're in a contract with a living God who is anxious to keep his word and to be faithful and do what you said. And I told you we were coming back to the covenant meal. Here we go. So, when the children of Israel were in Egypt and they had nine of the 10 plagues that have already been, you know, already been exercised, Moses came to them and said, okay, God's going to do the last one. And on this one, Pharaoh's going to let you go. He's going to deliver you because this is it. God's going to flex his arm and Pharaoh's going to break. And that's exactly what happened. But he told the children of Israel, here's what I need you to do. I want you to take a lamb and I want you to take it into your house. I want you to shut the door and I want you to slaughter that lamb. And I want you to put the blood all over the doorpost. And then I want you to roast that lamb and I want you to eat that lamb, eat every bit of it because you're going to need the strength and you're going to need, need the nutrients. It wasn't just the physical strength. Their act of faith was going to bring them a divine strength and a divine health factor that would give them what they need when they left. But he said, I want you to do this because tonight death and judgment's going to sweep through the land. But when I see the blood over the doorpost, then I'm not, I'm not going to judge you. I'm going to pass over you and you'll be considered as redeemed. And then I'm going to lead all of you out. And God did exactly what he said. And that began what God instituted as an every single year memorial feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Every single year they were to come back and reactivate this, not just to say, you know what? Yeah, we're trying to remember that one time in our history where God did that one thing. 
God wanted them to remember forever. No, this is not something God just delivered you once. This is something God delivered you once so you could recognize he is your deliverer always. God will always do this. And when you keep that blood over your life, when judgment and consequence comes, it'll skip right over the top of you. And instead, the Holy Spirit will step in and say, okay, now let me help you work through this because you're part of the redeemed. And this is what it was supposed to be for. So much so that three of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all record on that final last supper when Jesus sat with his disciples. Just before he goes to the cross, Jesus ties these together and Jesus said, from this point on, you're not going to celebrate the Passover meal anymore. You're not going to celebrate that Feast of Unleavened Bread, at least not like you did before. He said, because from this point on, the lamb that, that, you know, that we've slain, that you're eating, he said, I'm the lamb of God. And he said, and I'm going to shed my blood. And he passes a cup to them. And he says, drink this and recognize this is me shedding my blood for a brand new contract, a brand new covenant. And I'm covenanting with you right now that from this point on, as you allow the blood to cover your life, that God will be your deliverer every single time. Not once in a while, every single time. As you eat the bread, as you eat, eat this, he said, it's representing the body of the lamb, which is my body that's broken. He said, you're going to receive healing and nourishment from eating that. This is really important. Now, Jesus said that, and, and three of the, of the four gospels recorded in detail. Here's the last thing I'll bring you, and we're wrapping it up. 50 years later, the New Testament church is born. Jesus has died. He's resurrected. 50 years later, Paul picks this up and he reaffirms this to the, to the Corinthian church. And here's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body which is for you. Listen, do this in remembrance of me. And then verse 25 says, in the same way, also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, and in parentheses, as often as you, as you drink it, every time you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Now, that word remembrance is not just kind of to punctuate, you know, an attitude, but it's an action word for you and I. And he says, remembrance, actually, it comes from a Greek word, a compound. The first part of the word just means to repeat something over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. The second part of the word means to allow your repeating it to remind you or to activate a, a, a thinking, an attitude, an action in you that brings something to the forefront. So when you put this together, what, what Jesus and Paul are both saying is every time you take communion, every time you eat this bread, you're supposed to recall you're supposed to regather. You're supposed to recollect. You're supposed to replay over and over and over again everything that the Word of God has taught you, everything that God has done by experience, everything that you know to be true, either because you, you're enjoying it or because you're believing God for it. You're supposed to repeat that over and over so that you never, ever, ever forget that. And Jesus and Paul are both teaching, this is, this is vitally important. In fact, hold that as the first building block. Let's keep reading. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're in verse 26 now. He says, you do that for or because as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, listen to this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Again, that word proclaim is an action word. It's something you and I are supposed to be participating in 
every time we take community. In fact, the, the word proclaim, the first part of the word is the word kata, and it means to possess something forcefully. To possess something with such strength and, and, and such intensity that you dominate it. You grab it. You wrap your arms around it. There's no way that anybody's taking this away from you. And the second part of the word is where we get the word messenger. And so when you put those two together, here's what Paul and Jesus are saying, that anyone who possesses the truth of God's word, anyone who recognizes not just what Jesus did, but why he did it and what, means, what it means for us, every time we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we're supposed to wrap our arms around that. We're supposed to possess the promise and the truth of God's word, and we're supposed to pull it inside, and then we're supposed to become our own messengers. We're supposed to declare this over and over and over again. The Bible says, God promised me. Here's what the word of God says. This is especially supposed to happen when we're taking communion. In fact, that's again, it's exactly what you've been praying in the Lord's prayer and didn't even know it. Jesus taught you to pray, thy kingdom come and thy will be done. In the actual language, it says, come thy kingdom and be done thy will. You're declaring, you're inserting the authority of God that's been given to you through the word of God, you're inserting it into a situation. And Paul says, when you take communion, don't just drink some juice and eat bread. Listen, think about it for a minute. What's going on in my life? And what did God promise me? And what did God guarantee? And how do I grab and possess that promise now and bring it into my life and saying, I'm taking the covenant meal to remind myself that Jesus paid a precious price so that I could receive everything that God has for me. This is what we're supposed to be doing. Now, Paul's not finished. Let me read you one more passage because Paul says, and if you don't do it, here's what happens. Listen, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the blood, uh, the body and the blood of the Lord. I was taught growing up that meant if you took communion and you had sin in your heart, then you know God was gonna judge you and you might not even get to go to heaven. That was kind of a big deal, right? And by the way, it includes that. We'll talk about that. It includes that. But the Phillips translation says this, whoever eats the bread and drinks the wine without due thought is making himself like one of those who allowed the Lord to be put to death without discerning who he was. Not saying that you're crucifying, I'm crucifying, but you're just part of the crowd. Like, yeah, I'm just kind of going along. I'm just kind of doing what everybody else is doing. He says, if you're not paying attention to how you're taking communion, he says, you literally are insulting the precious price that Jesus paid because we're supposed to come to the table and receive from the Lord what he paid for with such, such a precious price. Listen to the last two verses. It says, therefore, let a person examine himself and then so, or some translations say, and then rightly eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Of course, that means examine. Is there any unconfessed sin? But just as important, it means, hey, am I paying attention here? Am I in the right attitude? Am I coming and realizing, man, Jesus paid such a precious price for me. And I have things in my life that I'm desperately in need of. Am I bringing those to the Lord? Or am I just like half asleep and I'm drinking some juice and eating a cracker because I'm just tired. I just want to get to the next part of the service. He says, don't do that. Listen to verse 29. For or because anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And verse 30, that's why. Many of you are weak and ill and some have even died. 
Listen to the message translation, verse 29 and 30. If you give no thought or worse, you don't care about the broken body of the master when you eat and drink. You're running the risk of serious consequence. That's why so many of you even now are listless and sick and others have gone to an early grave. And we got a lot to study. And you can't just make simple, you know, broad, broad reaching connections. I'm not saying that anyone who's sick, that anyone who's died and we felt like, man, you know, he was, he died, he died young, he died early. Don't start making those judgments. Listen, bring them to yourself. And what Paul is saying is if you don't recognize the seriousness and the faithfulness of this God, you can come to the table and you have all of this incredible need and God wants to meet it, but you're not paying attention. You're not receiving by faith. You're not recognizing the faithfulness of God. And so therefore, you don't receive with intention. And because of that, you walk right out. And not only did you not get your need met where Jesus intended it to be met, but now you walked out thinking, see, see what I mean? You know, I come to church and God still doesn't help me. Hold on for a second. It says that's not at all the truth. If you'll heighten yourself and you'll begin to lean in by faith, you'll find out that this merciful God that this gracious God is exactly what he promised he is. He will meet you in that need and he will do what it said. Let me give you four practical, I'm not even going to teach them, just four practical instructions. And here's how we're going to finish the service today. Rather than us taking communion as a whole body, I want you to experience, maybe for the first time, maybe for the first time in a long time, I want you to experience what it means to take communion between you and the Lord. Or it could be between you, a husband and a wife could be between a husband and a wife and their family. It doesn't matter what the grouping is, but let's take it out of the big church setting and let's make it personal the way that Christ intended for it to be. And here's four things that I want you to think about as you do. The first thing is, of course, if you have any unconfessed sin, of course, don't hide that. Just open it up to the Lord. You say, well, I'm not worthy to take communion. None of us are worthy to take communion without Jesus. So you come and you say, Lord, I had a, I had a bad week. <clears throat> I had a bad month. I'm just struggling here and I'm coming to you with all of my weaknesses, but I'm coming to you humbly saying, wash me, clean me today. And of course you want to confess that. Second of all, you want to declare your faith in the covenant. Some of you are just learning, but even what you've heard that sparked something, you said, yeah, that makes sense. I believe that. Then declare, Lord, I'm just learning this, but I believe that you are faithful to your word, that your word is holy, that you don't lie. And so I believe that. Here's the third one and it starts getting personal. Think about some of those specific things that you're needing. Don't just settle for those. Ah, my wife and I don't get along. Then bring that to the Lord. Bring, I need peace. We need wisdom. We need the, uh, another infusion of love and of romance in our relationship. Struggling with your children, struggling on the job, struggling with health issues, struggling with finances. Those are the very things. In fact, I, I would highly recommend, we're a couple of lessons we're going to get into more in detail, but I would recommend some of you open to passages like Psalm 103. The first five verses gives you five categorical blessings. Categorical. You never have to wonder if the Lord's going to do this. He forgives all of your sins. He heals all of your diseases. Lord, are you willing to heal me? He heals all of your diseases. He restores your life from the pit, or in other words, anywhere where you're in the hole and you're about to go under, God just reaches down and picks you back up and puts you on solid ground. He satisfies your mouth with good things. He crowns you with loving kindness. See, those are the things that are categorical. Open up and bring those to the Lord and say, Lord, we, we need healing today. And you said right here 
that you healed all of our diseases. So we're coming and we're taking the communion meal, asking you, do what you promised and bring healing to us. And then finally, ask the Lord to meet those needs according to your promise. If you'll do that, then you're doing what Paul said. You're remembering the Lord actively, remembering what he promised, and you are proclaiming, you are declaring by faith, God's telling the truth. And this is what I'm receiving today by this communion meal. I'm going to pray with you. again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for more messages. If you like what you're hearing, share it with your friends. For more content from Lakeshore and information on services, check us out at lakeshorecf.com.